what are we doing with our power? What are we doing with our voices? Where are we leading ourselves? Why do we have to survive? We talk about surviving. Why? Welcome to Dialogues with Max Ferency, a podcast about the relationship between art and society. In this second episode of the series, Dignity in the Uprising, we hear an extended excerpt from the conversation between Brenda Moreno, Samir Taylor, Dan Kunimoto, Sean Scheidt, and myself. It is an excerpt of a larger conversation that we had in response to the How Baltimore protest music that you heard in the last episode, the Dignity Before Bread music that you hear in the next episode, and their own experiences during the uprising. Enjoy. I'm curious uh, what all of you experienced sort of to tie in, you know, with the, the, the pieces and everything we've been talking about with empathy and understanding and tolerance and all this stuff. What did you experience firsthand around that time in the riots? If you were out in them um, or if you weren't out in them, uh, what was your perception of them? Good question. Well, um, so I live on a, on a side of town that has quite a reputation. Um, by even places or standards like Sandtown, I've heard, you know, don't go to Westport. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's the south side. <laughs> we even had people in Montgomery County telling me, you know, what, what are you doing? <laughs> but, yeah, our side of town was surprisingly quiet. And um, uh, when we, we, we got wind of a march coming down our way down MLK, and uh, we left the house as soon as we could. We didn't catch up with it, but we were both uh, two people on one foldable bike running down, <laughs> running down the street or biking down the street very dangerously. You know, just wanting to be a part of this peaceful, these peaceful protests. And you know, even even we felt good even just trying to go out there. Um, and. You know, we I, I had a few messages from people outside the state, you know, wondering what was happening and uh, watching it. It was kind of contagious as you watched it go spread to New York and things. It was it was unreal. Yeah, I am um, also from a part of town that has a reputation, um, Ellicott City, which is. <laughs> <laughs> I love Ellicott City. <laughs> it's very far removed from the realities of West Baltimore. You know, I, I mean, I've lived in Baltimore before, and um, and I think you know, I have a very, I what I feel is a strong connection to the city. And what I can say about my own experience is that I've seen and and I've met with um, a wide array of different people, you know, in, in and around Baltimore, throughout Maryland, or and maybe beyond that too. But I think. Uh, the, the question of, you know, we were talking a little bit about proximity, and actually the one thing I feel very proud about in Baltimore as opposed to certain other places, for instance, if I compare it to, like, Washington, D.C., then what I see in D.C. is this segmentation of the good, the rich, the, the fortunate in a certain geographic segment of the city, and then everything else. It's split up in quadrants, and that you can tell which which quadrants are rich and which aren't, or you know which quadrants are white and which aren't, you know. So, 
Whereas Baltimore, I've always described it to my friends as a place that is sort of riddled with the good and bad. They're all over the place. They're kind of spotty here and there. And I always, you know, say that if you're someone with money and fortunate in Baltimore City, you know, if you go to work or, you know, you're going somewhere, you're going to drive through some of the bad. You know, you're going to see some of uh, the things that you don't want to see or maybe you pay a lot of money to stay away from. But Baltimore is such a small city, you know, you'll see see a lot of it. You'll see all of it. And that's actually something I feel very proud of that, you know, regardless of who you are in the city, you'll, you, you get to experience a good chunk of the city as somebody who, you know, for me, I'm not even a resident right now of of the city, but when I come and visit my friends, I can't extract myself from the reality that is Baltimore. And that is something I feel extremely proud of and something that reminds me that there's always work to be done. There's always something that I can contribute. And there's, there's, a, there's a role for me to play. And, um, and it's exciting for me to f- continue to look for and find that role for myself. But I feel like an active participant in that way. Whereas if I was cut off from it, I don't know that I would feel that way. I think I would be in my own bubble. And I can say that for sure because I was living in um, Los Angeles for for three years of my life. And actually, that's that's even a lie. I was living in Santa Monica, which is, you know, the sort of western beach town of L.A., which doesn't see a lot of that stuff. You know, everything north of the, the 10 um, and west is extremely, you know, you've got your Beverly Hills, you got your Santa Monica, you know, everything's really nice. And you're shielded from seeing any of the negative. I mean, beyond some of the people who are the beach bums, you, you can't, you don't see anything bad. And, um, and I thought about how stark of a contrast that was from a place like Baltimore. And it made me also appreciate, you know, this city that much more. And that when you play a part in, in Baltimore, to any degree, you sort of develop this toughness, you develop an awareness, you develop a sense of uh, connection that is hard to extract from you. And maybe that's why I'm back. Maybe that's why I'm here and I can't stay away. But it's something that I feel like when you are engaged in the city, there is a connection that you will feel to uh, people. And you're exposed to that and you're ha- you have to deal with what do you do in order to, to live in this, to survive in this? And you start asking yourself the question, how can I enjoy this to the greatest degree? And I like that struggle. I like that challenge. And Baltimore presents it, oddly enough, in a really amazing way. On the negative side of what happened in Baltimore, I have to, I would like to comment this because it was something that moved me and generated a lot of questions in my head. The next day that the schools were open, our prin- the principal of our school allowed um, the students and the staff to ga- gather in the auditorium. And students were allowed to write down their concerns and their feelings and reflections about what had just happened. And I remember one specific reflection. It was for from a Spanish-speaking student, and he wrote, I left my country and my family behind, fleeing the violence that it's being generated there. And I come here, and it's happening. I'm really scared. It's moving, it's hurting, it's 
not fair. America is not supposed to be this picture to the rest of the world. America is supposed to be the country with the most resources and the best things to offer. So my questions were, what are we doing with our power? What are we doing with our voices? Where are we leading ourselves? Why do we have to survive? We talk about surviving. Why? So uh, to, to counter that, I think, shouldn't, you say this is not what America should be, but wasn't the, the uprising a, res a response a, a bubbling up of people who are tired of injustice? Isn't that what America is about? We were founded on a violent revolution to overthrow a government. Weren't... I think the MLK march you were referring to was the one where there were nearly 4,000 people in the street and I was out photographing that and nobody had any idea. It was the combination of three marches that came together and nobody had any idea where we were going or whatever But and the National Guards were pointing guns at us and there were three or four helicopters and the, the thing I remember the most about it was that there was this weird vibration in the air. This contagious, kinetic frenetic energy just shaking of people who not just I mean, oh god you know I, I have a hard time even thinking I have a photograph of a girl holding a sign a, a white college girl holding a sign saying we love our city and uh, it's being published in this book and uh, the author of which said um, I, she won't even be here in three years when she graduates college I bet but then I said okay that's likely true but God, is the sentiment not real? There was a scent. There was this. There was this bubbling up. This 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 um, energy of people wanting to be involved. And for me, yeah, I mean, sure, one day of looting is scary. It is scary. But it's less scary when it comes from a place of people wanting justice in a country where we can do this than it is when it comes from the government. <laughs> oppressing and the, the giant hand of smacking down on on the people that is America America is the place of the civil rights marches of Selma of of uh, Bunker Hill um, it's the place of uh, you know what was the uh, the first big uh, sort of battle in the uh, LGBT movement. Uh, Stonewall. Stonewall. Yeah, it, uh, you know, uh, it's heck. It's the, you know, it's the place of Stonewall Jackson. You know, I mean, this is America. So I, I there's no question there. I just had to share that. And I'm sorry. The the thing is, my question mostly is, why do we have to destroy in order to create? And that's what we are doing. We're using, again, our resources, our power, our voice, not in the best way, not in the best or positive way. We are leading a way of destruction to be able to rebuild 
another society. Why do we have to do that? I mean, I would say you could ask the same thing going back to the music of Muhammad. And he, just, he destroyed himself. Um, probably as, ex, as extreme as you can go. But he also initiated something whose repercussions are still working its way out in good ways and bad. Tunisia just got the uh, Nobel Peace Prize for their peaceful transition. Other places are not to peace yet. Um, but that, I mean, that, the, the, the same question you have to ask of people in Baltimore, understanding the, the how, not, not understanding actually, how traumatic it would be to come here fleeing violence and then see more violence that the student maybe being new here not knowing the context and maybe not knowing and not going out to the rest of the protests you know i was i was in my house watching news all night that monday night when the rioting was happening but then the next day when I was out there and recording the, the pieces of music, that was like one of the most amazing moments I've had in Baltimore, of just seeing everyone out there together, partying, supporting each other. Day. Yeah, it was that, that was Baltimore. That's when like, this is my city. And that's when I started like, you know, any, I started getting very defensive, any news anchors that would come up and, or like you'd see on the news, like Trump, people trying to make points out of what happened their own political points out of what happened in my city? No, I, I wouldn't have it, you know? Um, and that's, I mean, I think that's also why it's, I refuse to call it just the riots, because yes, there was rioting, but that's talking about 12, 14 hours of a week, which the rest of the week was actually really beautiful, and only if get an understand why the student wouldn't want to go out during one of those protests because there's so much chaos and not knowing what's going on but what's beautiful about america and the thing to focus on here you know especially if he's here is not just the rights but the entirety of the uprising right well as an immigrant i'm i'm almost so glad that he can actually communicate that and understand that that's ailing him in his psyche, because that's the first step, really, in, in recovering and understanding yourself and moving forward and all that. But as a, so, as an immigrant, I continuously ask myself that question. But second time around, I made a conscious decision to come here, and I value what America has to offer, because it's just like that old saying, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Um, I actively, continuously compare places like Belgium, my, my, my first home and my second and my second home here, America, because I know them very well. And from what I hear from most people is that, oh, it's so ideal over there, free education, free, free this, free that. But they have their own share of issues, you know? And, and so I, I think back to when I was a kid and I was coming to America and my image of America was the Empire State Building and, and they went to the moon. And I think America still is that. I'm not as amazed because I'm an adult, but it's still amazing in a way for kids, I'm sure, you know, coming over being like, oh, wow, I'm in America. I will, I will say this. I mean, I, I have an international family. I'm not an immigrant, but we spent a lot of time traveling to Europe and Asia. And um, democracy is easy when your population is relatively homogenous. Mm -hmm. 
Europe is blessed with that to a certain extent. You know, you have nation states founded upon around sort of homogenous groups of people. America was a nation, not, you know, founded by you know, a bunch of white planters, but the population was relatively diverse and growing more diverse. Democracy is messy in a diverse population, competing groups with competing needs, with competing histories, uh, with, you know, the injustices associated with any of that. I think that's the answer there is democracy is messy in our context and it has to be to be vibrant. America to me is still a land of vast possibility and that's a beautiful thing. At the same time, possibility itself is very raw. It doesn't mean that it's packaged in a way in which, you know, you're going to be showered with um, just fortune and, you know, without any effort. I mean, that's the other aspect of it. I think um, this country is founded on this idea that it takes work to transform your life, your family, your community into a place that you want it to be. And... You know, my parents are also immigrants, and so when we talk about homogenous societies, um, my parents are from Japan, and that's as homogenous as you can get. And when I uh, have conversations with my parents, particularly my dad, he um, he makes it known that that he left society there. He wanted to come to America because. It was so kind of cookie cutter in Japan. He wanted to, to sort of break free from that, which is really funny to me because to me, from the American-born standpoint, he's very cookie cutter and traditional. And I mean, that's maybe a different issue, but at the same time, that was his desire, you know, to break free from that. And it's all a matter of perspective, I suppose. That's true. That's very true. Um, but to me, you know, that that raw possibility. So when he came here, he had to work his ass off. You know, he. Um, he was in school for about, I think, seven years. He already had a bachelor's degree in Japan, but came here and decided to get another, you know, get um, get a degree that was going to translate into a job. And so he started studying, you know, computer science at Towson, and it took him seven years because he was working while he was going to school, and a lot of those were, you know, sleepless nights, and it was challenging. And even, too, finding a job was extremely difficult because he had to find somebody who was a friend of a friend who, you know, would sort of let him slip by and, you know, work when he wasn't supposed to work because he was here as a student. And so there was a lot of things, a lot of struggles that he had to go through in order to establish himself here. And I can, you know, I'm, I'm a beneficiary of that, you know, grew up a, in a wonderful setting and went to great schools and, you know, me and my two younger brothers. I mean, I, but when I think about the struggle that it took in order to, <clears throat> excuse me, to get to that point, then I think that, you know, that's the American story, like the effort that it takes to transform what you have from nothing into something is is what I think this country is all about, you know, but the, the aspect of, you know, what does it take in order to get to that point is is the effort, you know, and so I constantly think that America is still a battlefield. It's a battlefield that at times looks like it's right in front of us. It's in our communities. At times it's rioting and violence that we see. But it's my belief that when in our, in our generation, we are, this is a turning point that we take those 
violent situations or the way that we express them physically and transform it into a more um, internal transformation among the people. And so, you know, I, I do think it's sort of important, you know, like in other places where they're, they're trying to, you know, do it solely through violence. There's no diplomacy. There's no democratic means in terms of trying to find a solution. It's all violence. But we have this wonderful power of taking what we have in front of us and making it a more sustainable movement. And I think that's something I feel proud about in this country. Right, right, right. And in a way, I, I think I've, I've come to this conclusion before. I just forgot about it until now. <laughs> that's the American dream. That's when I was a kid and when I looked up to America, it's innovation. It's things like that. But slowly along the way, got eroded to what most people call the American dream, which is the white picket fence. And I think that's a mistake. The American dream is very well alive. And I'm guilty of having said the American dream is dead because it's the white picket fence. But that's not the real American dream. It's innovation and being able to make something out of nothing. And case in point, what I was talking about education earlier, the fact that your father could go to work and school part-time and make his way up, that's because the system is built that way. The education system in America enables that kind of thing. No matter how old you are or what situation you're in, you could take one class a week and or one class a semester and move forward. So... I love what both of you just said, but going again back to Brenda's story, it, it kind of reminds me of um, a friend of mine who came to Baltimore as a refugee from Iraq, was talking to me during the bicentennial of the um, national anthem, and we had big celebrations, we had, I think it was the Blue Angels here, and all their military jets flying around, and she was freaking out because she heard all these jets that, you know, I remember watching Shock and Awe on TV, she probably watched it from under her bed in her house, you know, like those jets were, were not attacking her, but definitely causing massive destruction in her country. And so that, that sound brought that trauma back. She knew in that case that it wasn't, um, they weren't attacking anyone, it was just an air show. It, but it was still frightening for her. And so I can see how your student, Brenda, could be very frightened. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's much more difficult to reassure, you know. You can't just say, oh, it's just an air show. No, it's not just an air show. But it's, it's that. I don't know how you can ask someone to be patient. But uh, there's a bigger picture. And I think that's, you know, as we, everything that you were talking about America, like that, it's, there is violence here, but there is a bigger picture to it that I guess can hopefully give us hope. That was, in order of appearance, Brenda Moreno, Sean Scheidt, Samir Taylor, Dan Kunimoto, and myself. Thanks again to them for all their insights. In the next and final episode of the series, Sean and I will talk more about our artistic processes of how we engage these topics. We also discuss what led to the creation of my musical story, Dignity Before Bread, that was one of the several inspirations for the conversation that we just listened to. That episode will conclude with listening to the full musical story. 
Visit maxfarency.org to hear the musical works discussed. Visit seanshite.com to see more of his photography. This has been Dialogues with Max Ferency. Until next time, thank you for listening.